So since it's Halloween, it seems topical to talk about something related to that time of the year. So I'm going to talk about the emotion of fear a little bit and what role that this emotion has in our life and uh, how it controls people. I think that's safe to say and also the importance of understanding the emotion of fear, not just for our mental health and our ability to, to function in life on a healthier level, but also for cultivators, particularly for those who are seeking mastery of meditation or the internal arts or something. An understanding of fear is vitally important. People like to be scared, right? I mean, uh, we even see this time of year, Halloween, I haven't looked, I don't take interest in such things, but I'm sure there's three or four horror films coming out around this time of year or, or whatever. And obviously people enjoy that. They like to have that kind of stimulation, that fear. And so it's not always an emotion that we, we always try to run away from. And it, it's not even one that we want to eradicate completely within our life necessarily, but we don't want it to have control over us. And that's really what we want to look at a little bit. So the first thing we want to understand about fear is that it takes place on multiple levels, with the first level being really a kind of innate primal fear, fear for survival. So essentially, if you look at uh, what human beings were, if we go back to our sort of ape-like, club-wielding, caveman kind of existence, you know, back in the day when the woolly mammoths wandered around the saber-toothed tiger, we're gonna chew your legs off at any moment. Fear served a very important sort of primal function. Essentially, it ensured that you survived. So that when that predator jumped down in front of you, whether it might be another rival caveman, or it could be a dangerous animal or something like this, that emotion of fear kicked in to cause you to do something, to act upon it, to put you into fight or, or flight. You know, you ran away or you, if you felt you could win, you would tackle that opponent. So fear was, was designed for this. It's the mechanism within us that enables us to stay alive just on a very basic level. So the emotion of fear on this level, this primal level is about survival. And if we look at kind of like the kind of survival people wanted, they would have had an individual survival, wouldn't they? So therefore they need protection, they need shelter, they need to feel safe, they need food so they don't die, those kind of things. You know, they needed the predators not there. All those things that could take your life back in those days needed to be taken care of. But then there was also fear for survival of the species, wasn't there? You wanted your species to survive. So therefore you wanted to be able to bear children. So there was obviously a fear there around their survival and their welfare as well. So once you'd had a child, there's a whole new layer of fear that kicks in around their welfare to look after them. There's also kind of, other sort of base aspects of life, if you like, our psychology that are connected to this emotion, like the desire to breed, the fear of not being attractive to a mate or something, which, you know, is something that many people experience, especially in their younger years, high school, school, college, things like that can be a very stressful time for a lot of people, can't it, around that, am I an attractive mate for somebody compared to the other people in my peer group or something? And for a lot of people that can stay with them. But this fear, would it be based in originally the fear for needing to mate in order to keep your family line alive. So again, it's just about survival. It's all about that, that same thing about keeping the human species going. So if we look at kind of all of what we call the base desires, you know, sex, power, food, um, wealth, if you like, materialism, whatever you want to call it, all of those things really, we, they're based in survival, that's it. They're just based in fear. The reason that they are such a dominant factor within our mind um, and such a prominent sort of part of our lower nature is because they're the things that govern whether we survive. But of course, in modern days, 
because those things aren't really such a survival issue anymore. It's not like we were lacking humans. They're all over the bloody place, aren't they? Everywhere you go is a bloody human ruining the view. So it's not like we're, we have a population issue, definitely not that way anyway. Um, and it's not really like we, most of us in this part of the world lack for food or lack for shelter or anything like that. And we, we're kind of on the top of the food chain with regard to predators, aren't we? So that's not much of an issue. So times have changed, but still those fears stay with us. But we don't label them fears anymore. We call them base desires, don't we? But what a desire. A desire is just the flip side of a fear if you actually look at where it came from. So essentially it would mean that almost all of your kind of core programming, what we might call your base instincts, are all still based in fear. They're all based in that same thing, fearful survival on some level that is manifesting in another way. So this means that for a cultivator, say somebody who's interested in internal arts, somebody who wants to master their base desires, if you like, or, or not be led by them, not be ruled by them, then of course it's the emotion of fear that we're looking at. This is what needs to be taken care of. And you'll find that as we talk more, most of our emotional things come down to fear on, on some level. So the survival mechanism that generates these kind of base desires, this feeling of fear, okay, is about not dying. That's it on a simple level. So it's avoiding death. A fear of death lay at the root of almost all of those kind of base fears, base desires, base feelings of inadequacy. But then on top of that, we have a second level of fear, a second level of dying really, which is the dying of the self. And this is something that maybe is more relevant to cultivators. So I think also as a sidetrack, you can kind of understand a little bit about why people kind of feel lost a little bit in life as well, or a lot of people do. Some people don't, they have a marvelous direction. They have the direction of their practice or their art or their religion or their profession or their family or, or whatever it is. Some people have a direction, but I think a lot of people feel a little bit lost. And I think that's a root for a lot of people feeling a little bit inadequate or a little bit depressed. Certainly when I speak to people, I, that's the vibe I get, um, especially younger people, right? especially when they leave school, leave college, feel a little bit lost. And I always think that's kind of interesting because if you think about like how a civilization would have developed in kind of stages, if you think about cavemen, what was the meaning of life at that time? To survive, that was it really, wasn't it? The sole function of a caveman, I would imagine, I'm projecting, I can't imagine a caveman suddenly sitting there going through an existential crisis, wondering, you know, if he's really fulfilling his dreams. I would imagine more that the kind of primal fears that govern his life mean that his purpose of life is simply to survive. That's what it's designed to do. But then as a, as a, as a species, as we go up in our intellect level and our understanding of the world, and also to take away some of those predatory dangers in our life, of course, our, our needs with regards to the meaning of life will go up as well. So then what happens is people will move beyond that, I just need to survive through to now I need to prosper. Now I need to prosper more than the people next to me. So you almost get the sort of early stages of a kind of materialistic kind of society starting to form, don't you? And then religion starts to appear, of course. So then the meaning of life becomes different because the meaning of life might be for these people to now reach the heavenly realm or something like that. So now there's a generation where people have a purpose. And as we move into the scientific age, of course, now that gets lost a little bit. Atheism spreads around and people are back to not having a meaning anymore. So this kind of undulating of finding purpose goes up and down. And the reason this is relevant is because <laughs> ultimately the thing that is supposed to push us towards our purpose is fear. That's what it's supposed to do. 
Um, and whether people like that or not, that is the mechanism within us. Because when you're a caveman, or your ancestors were cavemen, I assume, then that fear was supposed to keep you alive. And then what happens is you move into a more of a kind of society where you're trying to accumulate some kind of um, abundance in your life, then that fear of not having enough is the thing that propels you to have that. And if you move into a religious direction, the fear of going to hell is the thing that's going to sort of propel you in a direction of seeking help from the priest to enter the, the heavenly realm or whatever it is within your religion. And, and then ultimately, if you move into kind of an atheistic society and you don't have a kind of purpose in that way, then you're essentially that kind of fear of being inadequate within your society is generally the thing that's going to push you on to do something, isn't it? And we might deny that, but I think it's fair to say that many people, especially when they apply comparisons into the world around them, feel quite inadequate compared to others. Isn't that a large part of our society? Celebrity culture, millionaire culture, um, successful people, sports, athletes, competitiveness. I, I think a lot of people certainly a lot of people working on level where they feel quite inadequate compared to others and this is all still based on that same thing that kind of fear feeling right so fear fear has its kind of like has its purpose because fear can manifest in all of those things because i would say that fear of death fear of risk fear of poor health fear of dying all those kind of things can manifest on other levels so that's why you get self-esteem issues and uh, feeling of lacking, feeling of inadequacy, um, all, all these kind of, kind of emotional traits that people get left with that often lead into a kind of depressed kind of state. These are all fears as well, fears of not being enough. These kind of like, these emotions, these fears that linger within us, um, part of the issue is of course that you know, your body is designed to take fear, as we know, at certain times, you know, so everything is peaceful, everything is placid, everything is hunky-dory, and in comes a saber-toothed tiger, there's a momentary panic, and then the situation is alleviated, and then back to calm, much like an animal. I mean, if you watch animals, that's how they are, they can go out, be petrified of something, and then 20 minutes later, they're sat in front of the fire, and they've forgotten, you know, they move in and out of these states. But human beings, unfortunately, we tend to store things because of the complexity of our mind. We tend to store these attachments and fears to them. So consequently, they stay within our body. So a lot of people are also operating with a kind of latent chronic level of fear that's kind of stored inside their body. And any Chinese medicine practitioner will know this is going to eventually wear down the adrenals and then start to affect the kidneys and cause the chi to sink within the body and cause all sorts of problems to do with deficiencies and, and weaknesses in the system. So we need to tackle this. But we also need to understand that this is all kind of like primal stuff, right? This is survival stuff. Survival as a human being, survival as a creature, survival of the next generation, survival within your society, something like this, okay? But there's also this, this kind of idea that there is a second layer to us that can die. And we're not even necessarily rec sort of um, aware of it. It's not something that we kind of focus on in our societies too much, but Eastern practitioners would. And this is that there is a death of the sense of self. So some of my teachers will say that in implicitly to me, that you, you will have to die. <laughs> you have to die once. Your sense of self has to die in order to enter into a full union with spirit. This is a major part of spiritual practice, right? So that acquired part of your nature, your biases, your preferences, your distortions, your 
nurtured learnings, all of these things have to die. Okay, they have to be sacrificed on the altar of your spiritual practice in order to enter into union with something higher. And this is really what a lot of cultivators are engaging in. They might not use such um, <laughs> extreme language, I'm, I'm aware, but this is really what it's about, right? What happens to a Christian? Don't they have to become reborn? Don't you have to die first to be reborn into some kind of union? And, and maybe they have a slightly different interpretation of that idea. But to me, it would have been rooted in something similar originally. So the sense of self is really um, going to be the root for many of the sort of more complex fears or definitely the more sort of pernicious lingering fears that we have. Okay, that, that's going to be the root of it. So we all know if you study any kind of meditation that we can talk about a part of your being that is that which you accidentally identify with. So this would be the part of your mind, the intellect, that is constantly learning via experience of the sense faculties and your thoughts and it's producing layers and layers and layers around you to create um, an individuated sense of identity. Okay, some people would call it the ego, although that phrase is a little loaded. Some people call it the acquired mind. Um, some people call it the false sense of self. It doesn't matter. It's that part of our being that we accidentally identify with. There's then a second part of our being, which we might call the awareness, that is paying attention to that. It's paying attention to the mind, paying attention to the acquired sense of self. And a lot of meditation practice is based in initially learning to separate them a little bit, create a little bit of a distinction, a space between them so we can identify one from the other, and then starting to learn how to shift the sort of point of reference to the awareness rather than the acquired mind. This is a lot of what um, certainly early insight-based practice is about, is about trying to do that in many traditions anyway. They might have different ways of explaining it, but this is the idea. So the acquired sense of self, that part that is formed, you will bring some of this with you into this life according to Eastern traditions and this is partially um, maybe through past lives or karma um, but also through the characteristics of your family. You know, we can't deny that there's definitely a nature aspect that comes down through families. Even if you have, um, uh, you know, there's plenty of tales of somebody who's never met their parents or never met one of their parents and then at age 20 or whatever they finally meet their parents and then they find there's lots of shared character traits. So clearly those character traits weren't passed on through nurture, so they were passed on through nature. They have to have been because they were there without there being any contact during the formative years. So we have this part of ourself that's already there, been passed on by the family, passed on by your parents. But then you also have all of the layers that form afterwards through the experiences that you have. So your sense faculties, I always miss one out, but sight, hearing, smell, touch, taste, that's it. And then they add thought as well in Eastern traditions, the sixth of your senses is thought. So the interplay between these, which actually is quite complex, but I won't go into it now, there's an actual model for how this happens, but the interplay between these sense faculties generates essentially a series of experiences that form your sense of self. So as you have emotional reactions to things and emotional attachments, preference, things you like, things you don't like, all of these things will form your sense of self, so your personality will, will develop. So a newborn child doesn't have much of this, has a little bit, but mostly it's functioning from awareness. And as you go through your life and have these experiences, this is what forms. So your mind is supposed to do this. 
It's supposed to do that. That's its role. It's supposed to do it so that you can learn and learn how to function in the world. So we should never demonize the sense of self. It's not an issue. And we're never trying to completely get rid of it. Because if we got rid of any individuated identity, I suppose you'd be in a slightly vegetative state and unable to function. So we do require a mind. We require a personality. So why this is relevant is because one of the greatest fears that people have, or the greatest categories of fear, and I think the majority of people's fears are based in this, the majority of people's fears are based in a sense of that self no longer being strong. No longer being strong. So, for example, if you have something that makes you feel better about yourself, like you are uh, more skilled, you are better, you have more value, you have more worth, you have done something worth achieving, something you're proud of, anything, doesn't matter, something that is positive, that is going to give you a strengthening to your sense of self. That's what it's going to do. It's like your sense of self is leveling up, essentially. And as you become, your sense of self feels stronger, feels more powerful, you develop more of an attachment to it. So that's not necessarily negative. Okay, maybe from the point of, point of view of cultivation, maybe we have to understand that mechanism a little bit more. For most of us, general life, there's nothing wrong with our sense of self becoming sort of feeling more empowered, more like it has more value. So what will happen is basically as the awareness looks at that event that gives you a sense of identity and becomes stronger, then it will reinforce it. So essentially it's like the awareness is watering the seed of your self-worth to make it stronger. So your sense of individuality, but I don't know what it's hard to say, gets stronger and stronger. So most parents, I think, would generally understand that if you want your child, your offspring, to be um, uh, positive and healthy and, and full of a good self-esteem, essentially what you're trying to do um, is you're trying to give it these kind of experiences, the child, that are positive for it and nourishing for it so it grows. So the awareness pays attention to those kind of qualities. And then gradually what happens, especially during the formative years, is that child will grow into a person that recognizes the positive experience as of something that strengthens the sense of self in a healthy way. So essentially this would be giving a child um, a sense of worth and a self of, sense of self-esteem as it grows. But the downside to this is of course that the more, it's unavoidable, the more you build off the sense of self, the more the sense of self has a fear of any of those things being taken away. And this is a part of the issue. So consequently, Anything that attacks your sense of self, attacks your sense of self-worth, attacks your sense of self-esteem is going to generate a fear within you because it feels like you've lost a bit of yourself. Yeah? Especially as the more individual you feel okay, as a person through identifying with this part of the mind, the more a natural competitiveness or comparison starts to build with people around you. And it's almost impossible for us to ever fully move out of this comparative state. It's almost impossible. That's just how human beings function, unless you live on your own in the middle of nowhere. We can, well, even then you're gonna watch people on social media or TV and compare yourself to them. But it's a large part of our nature. So as that something is taken away, maybe somebody beats us in a competition, maybe somebody gets that um, promotion above us, maybe somebody tells us we're fucking ugly and useless, I don't know, whatever it is that attacks that sense of self-esteem will then generate a sense of fear inside because the sense of self fears that it's dying. And that, that might sound strange. That might sound strange, but this is really what it comes down to. It's like a defense mechanism for the sense of self. So 
the mind has a backup mechanism. This is what I always think is rather cool. It's like some kind of AI computer system. There's always a, a kind of plan B for your mind as well. Because what will happen is if your mind can't get positive reinforcement, it will seek negative reinforcements. It doesn't matter. It doesn't care at all. At this stage, the mind will seek anything that draws your attention. So consequently, some people, especially during their formative years, will learn from negative behaviors. So the extreme case, I suppose, with people that lived in abusive um, houses or something like this. But of course, we've all had some negative experiences over the course of our life to varying degrees. So your awareness is going to latch onto those things as well. It's going to latch onto whatever emotion is generated by that experience, be it anger, be it worry, be it sadness, be it grief, be it jealousy, it doesn't really matter, whatever it is, your mind will latch onto it as well. So essentially all experiences that you have are going to start reinforcing the sense of self. So over time, all that happens is the awareness gets lost in that illusion of the mind until it believes that that is the point of reference for existence. And that is key, right? So if you watch what happens with regards to this mind is if it feels that it's starting to break down in any way or challenged in any way or questioned in any way or, or anything like this then first of all there's a feeling of fear that's what's going to arise and then plan b will arise that if that fear doesn't motivate you to correct that issue then it will produce one of your default emotions instead so then that fear will change into anger or it will change into worry because it knows it can feed the awareness through that emotion instead so if I've lost you, <laughs> I'll give you an example. Say for example, um, okay, maybe you really value your job. Maybe you're one of those, we call them jobsworths in the UK, those people that kind of fully identify with their job. They're the guys that come out and go, I can't power, uh, you know, always know the rules. But say that job is really important to you and your whole life is based around this. And then what happens if you get to a certain phase in life and maybe you get a little bit old and then they make you redundant. They just come in, 40 years of loyalty, they walk in and go, you're fired. And straight away for a lot of people, what that can create is a massive collapse in their sense of identity. Like, what the fuck? I just lost my entire life gone. When to someone who's not a job's worth, they would just go, it's just a job, like whatever. But for those people who've identified with it, it can be a real blow. So what's going to be generated as a reaction to that? First of all, fear. Fear is going to be generated. Anxiety. And some of those anxieties might be, illogic, might be logical, sorry, might be logical. How am I going to provide for people? How am I going to find another job? Am I going to have enough money? But then all of the illogical fears start to arise. Like, who am I now? <laughs> what kind of value do I have in society? What is my purpose? Now I don't have that job. What do I do? Those kind of fears can arise in people. Now the reason I'm saying they're not logical is because those are fears based in the false sense of self's identity, not the true self, not the real self. Your actual identity is not based in what you do as a profession. Of course it's not. That's just a layer on the outside. That part of you that identifies with a career is certainly from a cultivation point of view, not the sense of self that's going to unify with spirit if you manage to go deep enough into your practice. So therefore it's almost an irrelevant defense mechanism. So are you defending yourself, true self, self with capital letters if you like no not at all you are now defending the false sense of self's identity so that fear will kick in and then if it doesn't 
generate enough of a reaction for you to change that situation. Fuck, I'm frightened. I've got to get an equally powerful position, an equally important position. Then what will happen is then the other emotions will kick in. So then comes the anger, the denial, the, the whatever, the upset. It doesn't really matter. Those kind of emotions will be generated. The reason that those emotions are generated is because your mind is now going, I need something new for Demo to identify with, to generate more self. I've lost my sense of self from the job, but if I get angry and I start to feel empowered from my rage, then that's another layer of self that can be developed. Okay, hope you understand that. So this is basically the mechanism for the mind and why it starts producing the food of the thoughts all of the time. Now, underneath all of this, because this might sound irrelevant to the emotion of fear, right? Like, how is this related to fear? It's 100% emotional <laughs> related to the emotion of fear because this is where the fear is generated. It's the same thing. Losing your job or losing your profession or being dumped or being argued with from someone of an opposite political viewpoint or whatever, all of these things that challenge what you think and who you identify with and, and who you thought you were and your sense of self-esteem become the root for the emotion of fear that arises within you. So almost anything that causes fear will attack one of those two places. It either attacks you primarily, is my life in danger? So that goes right back to the caveman instinct, doesn't it? Um, and even things we like to watch, the horror films, the Halloween stuff. What's Halloween's? Death, fucking badly carved. I did that one, it's not very good. My friend Rick did that one, it's a lot better. But the, the sort of ghouls, I don't even know why, why pumpkins, what they represent, but monsters, like things like that, that we have these kind of horror films these are people on a primal level being killed isn't it chased around by the guy with the knife and whatever that's that kind of fear so that's fear type one so we kind of have some of that fear don't we a little bit but then there's the other kind of fear which is the thing that attacks our sense of identity and that is the more pernicious fear that is carried through into all of our lives right that is the second type of fear so that is the fear that we will experience not in the same way as being chased by the jack-o'-lantern with flames, but more like the fear of I'm not worth enough. I don't have enough self-esteem. I don't have enough value in society. Now, it's funny that a lot of people won't even identify those emotions as fear. But what do people think they are? Of course they're fear. They're fear. They're a feeling of not having enough sense of self. And the reason it's generated, why that's so important, is because the sense of self is a frightened, is a frightened, a feared, afraid, that's the word I'm looking for. The sense of self is afraid of dying, of not being there. So it's constantly going to prod your awareness with this fear of not being worth enough. Okay, and this is the more problematic fear. This is something as a Chinese medicine practitioner that I see attacking the kidneys so much, right? We all know that fear and the kidneys are, well, okay, all Chinese medicine practitioners will know that fear and the kidneys are related. And I think we can all agree that one of the biggest deficiencies for people is their kidneys. Like, it, there's a lot of people struggling with kidney indeficiency or kidney weakness or kidney... Like, it's, it's, they kind of wear out. And a lot of people will jump straight away to, if there's not an obvious fear around that's caused, caused that, they're not being attacked by the neighbor or something, then maybe it's just overwork or aging or something like this. But then there's overworked people who are quite old who have healthy kidneys. So therefore, to me, there's another variable there. And you can say maybe inherent levels of strength they might have had when they're born. But I would say, actually, it's because a lot of people are living in a chronic state of fear. 
But that fear is not always obvious to us because that fear will manifest as self-esteem issues or um, lack of confidence, lack of purpose, lack of direction in life. I mean, Chinese medicine is trying to hint at this by saying the kidneys and the willpower are related to each other. The willpower is the ability to see things through, that strength. What's going to counter that? Lack of self-esteem, lack of self-value, anxiety, those kind of things. So to me, a lot of these are rooted in fear as well. So this is why, this is why out of all of the organs, this is one that can be attacked very, very clearly in people, one of the reasons, because a lot of people are living in that chronic state of fear, chronic state of stress. So if we look at that defense mechanism that exists, because this is the root of the problem, right? Aside from stressing the kidneys and the adrenals and putting you in that constant fight or flight, anxiety-ridden state, aside from that, the biggest problem is if we look at the mechanism that takes place between fear and the other emotions. So remember I say something attacks your sense of self and initially there's like a fluttering, there's like a fear. Um, and then afterwards this will be replaced by an emotion. This is where the problem comes from because the emotion is going to be the ones that your mind, we need more words, don't we? But you know what I mean? You have learned creates the greatest reaction, the greatest reaction for your awareness. So what this means is say during your formative years, I don't know, you came from a very angry background. Maybe there was a lot of violence around you or you had some very angry experiences when you were younger and that builds into as your default. Then when something attacks your sense of self, what's the mind gonna do? It's gonna present you with the emotion that it knows is very, very stored within you that creates the strongest draw for your awareness. So up comes that anger. So that reactivity, and this is the problem, is the reactivity of anger arises and that reactivity is on autopilot. This is the issue, it's on autopilot. Because you know, you know that's your pattern and we can all see this. Most of us know that we have a default emotion or, and obviously emotion are a broad category, there might be a whole spectrum within that, but we tend to have an emotional state that arises when we get stressed or when we get tired. And if you can't identify it for yourself, I can guarantee your loved ones can. They can, they can see it because <laughs> they've seen you reacting. And you can probably see patterns around most people around you. Some people, when there's a big stress or something that's difficult, will get teary and they'll get upset and they'll get afraid. And some people, when something's very difficult, they'll just sort of get very angry and other people will get very withdrawn and, and very kind of lost inside themselves as they go into a kind of self-loathing. And other people will start to worry and some people inappropriately laugh. You know, there's, there's all sorts of reactions that we generate. But as soon as that reaction arises, you are now functioning on autopilot. Because when you're functioning on autopilot, you are just running that experience through all of the prior processes that you've had, the prior experiences you've had, like a database. So I'm 41, I think, yeah, 41 years old. That means I got 41 years of previous experiences that are stored in here, like some kind of database. And I'm kind of old fashioned. So in my view, in my brain's got those sliding drawers and you have to kind of flip through the paper files of all the experiences I've had. So therefore, whenever something happens that causes me stress, especially if something attacks my sense of identity, then what will happen is I'll, my mind will race back through all of those prior experiences looking for similar experiences I've had before. So that person says something and I'm like, well, that's a bit like what that person said and that person said and that person said and that person said in my past. So they all get accumulated into one mass. So you've got another issue there is you're never really reacting to the one problem. When you react, you're reacting to that problem and every prior experience you've had over the last 41 years at the same time. And this is why we have certain things that trigger us. Because 
somebody can say something to me that's insulting and I'm not that angry. Somebody says something insulting to me, a different insult, I'm not that angry. But then that, and I go shut up. But then some third person says something to me that just touches on a particular insult I'd experienced before. And I've always had 20 other people say the same thing, you know, or something similar. So what happens now is my rage goes and just goes blown out of all proportion because I've now got not one person, one instance is rage, but 20 instances of rage from my past. Hope you understand that, right? So your mind, this is the bummer, is your mind knows that the reaction of rage is amazing because as soon as that, ah, you said that thing that's just like what that other cunt said comes up inside my mind, the awareness latches onto it, feeds it, and then more sense of self, okay? More for me to protect, more, more for me to be frightened of losing in the future, ultimately. So what it means is that your mind will start to form tenuous links, now see if you can see this in people, because now someone will say something that's not actually that insult, but it's slightly similar. So therefore my mind goes, look, it's, look, fucking Damo, look, he's saying the same as that person. So out comes the range again. And then eventually more and more things that are difficult for me are gonna take me to that place where that rage comes out until eventually it becomes your default experience to everything, yeah? So this is why um, spiritual traditions, especially alchemy and things, have said that essentially emotional reactions to things, your emotions prevented you from seeing something purely, like cleanly. Because you've all had that experience of somebody has said something to you innocently, and it hasn't been insulting. But in your mind, because of all your distortions, you have heard what those other 20 people said. So out comes the rage, and the other person's really confused. What did I say? And boom, out comes that rage, right? So all of these are simply the reaction that is coming as a result of the fear of the thing that is attacking your sense of self. That's all it is. It's coming as a reaction to fear. This is why fear is the root of all the emotions. So if you don't believe me, here's an experiment for you. This is a brilliant time. This is homework, podcast with homework. Try this, you'll hate this. <laughs> it's Right now, I think it's safe to say we live in a fairly divisive time, don't we? We've had two years of um, the unnamed disease of unknown origins that I can't name because the video gets deleted or something. But we've all gone through a very difficult period, or lots of people have gone through a very difficult period over the last two years. And I think we can see that people are becoming increasingly divisive, aren't they? Forming sides. So people will argue about anything. And the latest thing people are arguing about is medications or vaccines at the moment, is it? It's like a big deal. But also political division is a lot higher. People are very polarized to different positions. And we've all experienced, we all have these views, we all have, have these opinions. And many of us, when what happens when we confront someone or we're faced with someone who has an opposite view on vaccines, for example, or, or politics or whatever, immigration, guns, abortions, whatever the issue of the time is, when we confront that other person or we have a conversation with them and they don't have the same view do you see what happens the rage that comes up right or the defensiveness or some people the sadness I suppose get teary but most of us get very kind of defensive when we're confronted by somebody the opposite view and this is your experiment because essentially say I have a very strong political agenda and somebody has the opposite political agenda I'm red they're blue or I'm blue they're red it doesn't really matter whatever it is then 
when you are discussing with it or arguing, because that's what it turns into, having a conflict with each other in person or online, I suppose, these days, you're never really trying to convince the other person. It might feel like you are, but actually what you're doing is you're just defending your own view, your own sense of self. Because when your self is confronted with a view that it doesn't agree with, it has to kick in a defense mechanism to show actually, no, fuck it, I have the right view, that person is definitely wrong, up on my soapbox, and up comes the defense mechanism, and your emotional reactivity kicks in straight away. And even if you manage to kind of grit your teeth and stay passive aggressive, which is my favorite form of, I hate passive aggression, but people stay in that state, then you can still feel it. You start to get hot, right, behind the ears, behind the neck, like you feel it rising up in you when you're caught in that state. So the experiment I want you to do is next time you find someone with an opposite view, online or in person, simply back down. <laughs> simply back down. Watch what happens. So somebody says something you, you, they, they, is the opposite of you. You say, well, I don't quite agree. And then they get on their soapbox and they start ranting. And you just go, okay, all right, yeah, and, and take it on board. Not in like a passive-aggressive, yeah, you're right, so they know you don't mean it. But actually listen to them. And then, but more importantly, listen what happens inside your body. Because before the emotional reaction comes, fear arises. You will see it, it will arise. That fluttering of the heart, that fluttering in the stomach, like, like almost like a clamminess will come. It's the fear is there, but it's momentary. It's only very brief. It's like one, two, three seconds, and then it's replaced by whatever your reactive emotion is. That's what comes next. But there's a little window of fear there. And that fear, and you won't spot it unless you're looking for it, but that fear is your defense mechanism for the sense of self. And your mind will play all sorts of amazing tricks by going, no, I am standing up for what I believe because if I convince this one person that I'm talking to in a pub that I'm right politically, it's definitely going to change the world. So therefore, I have to have the argument, like logically, <laughs> convincing that one person is not going to change anything. So there's no rationale to what you're doing. It's simply a defense mechanism, right? But look for that root of fear, because that fear is there. So the reason this is relevant is because it means that if you can take away the fear, you take away almost all of your emotional reactivity. Almost all of it will go away. It will go once the fear is gone. So all these people trying to deal with their anger, they won't. It's not possible. They might learn to count to 10, breathe, coping mechanisms and picture a fairy and, and sort of suppress it because <laughs> that's ultimately what it is. But if they haven't dealt with the fear that is at the root of that, it's not going to go away. It's not going to go away. What is the fear? The fear is your sense of self and your center, sense of identity being challenged. That is what the fear is. So the only way to deal with the fear is therefore to develop insight into the nature of self and the greater identification or greater insight you develop into this part of your identity, the more it can start to break down and become fluid. The more it starts to break down and become fluid, the more that you have the ability to change within that space. Okay? This means you can start to identify with something a little higher, deeper, whatever term you want to use. And this will start to take away the power that the fear has over you because ultimately, almost all cultivators or spiritual practitioners have to learn that there's not really anything to defend. If you're defending your sense of self, you're defending the one thing that you're not really trying to focus on, particularly for spiritual cultivation. And once you get through that process and you go down through and you, you break down your kind of where your fears are coming from, that second layer of fear, self-fear, kind of disappears. And as it goes away, you're only left with primal fears. They're still going to be there. You might still have nervousness 
of being hit by a car, you might step in the road and the car comes and you freeze and jump out of the way. Those kind of mechanisms will still be there. But even then, there's a second layer of practice or inside or whatever we have to go through cultivation to deal with those ones. But first, that sense of self must, must be dealt with, yeah. So, kidneys in Chinese medicine, yeah. What is the connection? Fear, we know. Okay, adrenals, kidneys, nervous systems. Right? Okay, we can see how that's all connected. But what about will? What about will, right? Because when people talk about will, okay, we have different types of will. I may be a little divorced from Chinese medicine here, a tiny little bit, but one kind of will would be the force to see something through. Okay, to see something through, fair enough. That's kind of forceful will. But then there's also free will, isn't there? The will to choose, the will to decide uh, what to do. So life presents you with options and, and obviously your preferences are always gonna be there but then your will enables you to override those preferences. So on a really simple example, probably only relevant to children. No, that's not true. That's relevant to adults as well. We'll talk about it in a second. But say you give an adult, a child, chocolate bar and a pile of vegetables. <laughs> Obviously, most children, unless you've got one of those weird fucking hippie ones, most children are going to choose the chocolate bar immediately, aren't they? That's going to be their, their preference. That's going to be the preference, right? So the question is, which one are they gonna choose? But children often don't have the kind of sense or the will to choose correctly. So what they'll do is they'll go very much on their preference. They'll go very much on just, duh, duh, this is what I'm gonna eat. I don't wanna get into this too much, but this is very much linked into the psychology of the numerological phases for the kidneys. Because at certain ages, um, number eight for men and, and seven for women, certain ages your free will kicks in, so your preferences become um, should be less of an important dominant factor in the way that you make your decisions. So it means that once I'm at a certain age, I know the chocolate bar is there and I know I like that chocolate bar. I like that thing, but these asparagus are gonna be a lot better for my health. So therefore, if I have enough free will, I will choose the asparagus. Okay, it's a very simple example. The reason I say it's also relevant to adults is because I'm always amazed how many parents I see in restaurants will force their kids to eat vegetables but then they'll only eat the sort of meat and potatoes and push the vegetables to the side. I think it's really weird. I think that, that's beside the point, but I think it's very hypocritical. So essentially, you have, this is, this is really important, trying to explain this clearly. Every decision, every experience you have life will pass through the filter of your preference and you're not under control of that. So I don't choose who I like. I don't choose what I like. I don't choose what food I like. I don't choose what colors I like. I can't choose that. That's in me. I might be able to psychologically change something in myself and maybe work with over time, but generally there's always gonna be a preference. If you hand me a Chinese tea and a white Russian, I know which one I prefer, definitely. That is gonna kick in automatically. It's not the tea, there's the clue. Like the, the preference is there. But my will enables me to go, no, the white Russian is not good because I'm just about to operate heavy machinery, so therefore I will go with the Chinese tea. So my free will enables me to overcome programmed stuff, okay, stuff that is already within me. That makes sense, okay, I hope so. But the more that you are in a state of fear, the willpower is lessened. Chinese medicine has told us this, willpower, kidneys, emotion of fear. The more you are in a state of fear, even that chronic underlying sense of fear, the less you are able to operate uh, sorry, the less you're able to access your will, the less you're able to 
find that part of your being. So consequently, with that out of the way, you're going to be more like a child, young child. You're just going to operate on preference. That's what's going to happen. So therefore, whenever anything is presented to you, for example, with food, you're not going to choose the healthy choice. You're going to choose the choice that gives you the most pleasurable stimulation. If you're given the option of an activity, you're not going to choose the one that's good for you. You're going to choose the one that generates the most pleasure. So the more frightened you are, the more you are stuck in this autopilot mode. This becomes important, right? Because free will is gone. The more fear you have as well, that ability to use will will also, inability to use will, will prevent you from moving away from the emotional reactions as well, right? So in the same way that your preferences come to the fore, your innate biases, so do your innate emotional reactions. So what it means is if you're living under the state of fear, and if you want to use Chinese medicine terminology, but I don't care, the kidneys are suppressed, then you're going to be more reactive, more reactive, more reactive, because you don't have the free will to operate and see how you should be acting. Again, kind of like a child, you know? Like a child is a bit like that. A child is some, okay, I'm generalizing. Some people like to say have weird kids, don't they? Like children of the corn, fucking vegan kids or something. But most kids are generally quite, you've seen parents in supermarkets if you don't have kids yourselves, reactive emotionally very quickly. And sometimes they're able to work with the parent and the parent can, that's the job of the parent, right? Is to help them to understand that that emotional reaction is not healthy right now or whatever you do as parents, I'll take your word on it, you know, and, and teach them a little bit of emotional intelligence so that they can use their free will to choose between right and wrong. I think that's a large part of parenting, isn't it? So that you develop a person in a healthy way. But I would say that a lot of adults are still operating on the level of a child. <laughs> Moving from angry reaction to angry reaction to angry reaction to angry reaction to, oh, that's nice, that tastes good, I like that, that stimulates my pleasure. And then back to a reaction, 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 because they don't have the ability to access the free will of the kidneys because they're in a state of fear. That's really what it comes down to. So on a simplistic level, let's not get into conspiracy theories. I know it's Halloween, the time when all the elites are off sacrificing children at Bohemian Grove and all that kind of stuff. But essentially, if we ignore conspiracies, I'm not talking about on a governmental level, you can come to your own conclusions, but they're doing it. If you keep a group of people or a person in a state of fear, they don't have free will. So therefore, you can choose to get them to react emotionally in any way you want and then present them with things that they like that might not even be good for their health. And the funny thing is, because you're in a state of fear, your mind will protect it and it will justify all of these emotional reactions and it will justify all of these preference-based actions until you are sure they come from your free will. You are sure they are what you've chosen when in actual fact they've just been given to you. So the bad news is we all function like that to a certain degree, to varying degrees. But for the cultivator, this is very important because the cultivator needs free will. People in normal life, they need free will too. Of course they do, because if you have free will, you have the ability to achieve some kind of actualization because your biases and your preference and your emotional reactions will never lead you to a place of finding meaning in life. They will not. They will lead you to a place of defending the development of the sense of self and avoiding any kind of higher purpose whatsoever. But if you have some degree of free will and you can separate yourself from the biases and the preferences and the emotional reactions, you will gradually start to find some kind of purpose. 
because you will gravitate towards that which is more correct for you. There's even an aspect to will within Taoism where there's a third type of will they call the will of heaven. Okay, and the will of heaven is not destiny, it's not fate, but it is certainly a degree of purpose that a person can find. But unfortunately that third layer of will is only findable, is that even a word? Locatable, you can only find it, I'll say that, if the other two forms of will are there. So therefore the ability to have drive and the ability to have free will to override the biases and the preferences. So for a regular person, let's say, that kind of free will enables them to find some kind of purpose in their life. So as I eradicate the fear, I step back from the emotional reactions, I move away from operating according to my preferences and my biases, then it will find some kind of purpose in life. And hey presto, life becomes a lot more pleasant because now you have a function. Now you're not wandering around from cradle to grave, living in a state of fear, consuming the things they want you to consume, reacting to the things they want you to react to, and then you die. Which sounds miserable, let's not do that. So that's good for them. But for cultivators, we need to take that to an incredibly high level because you are going to need a lot of will if you're going to start stepping into some of the higher parts of the practice. Now, here's the contradiction. I know some people were listening go, no, you should give up your free will and go with the flow in order to cultivate. Mm, yeah, maybe, but maybe you need to have willpower first. Maybe you have to have something to let go of in the first place. So if you never have any free will, what are you going to let go of? You have to have something. You have to develop the thing that you're letting go of. I believe that Tao Te Ching says that before something can be soft, it has to be made hard. Before something can be curved, it has to be made straight. Or in my terminology, you can't rise above what you can't do. So therefore, you're going to need that will to a very high degree. So therefore, you're going to have to eradicate all fear. All fear. Fear of death. You are going to have to practice to eradicate a fear of death. That death is primarily going to be the sense of self at first. And the first step on that is understanding it. So people are always like, what's the practice? How do I eradicate my sense of self? First of all, go and explore the mechanisms that the sense of self uses to defend itself. Because until you understand those, you don't know what you're working with. You've got no idea. How do you know what you're working with until you can identify those? So we need to see it. And I guarantee you what you'll find at the root of all of it is fear. That will be emotion that sits there. So I'll leave it there. I'll conclude this talk here. might seem semi-relevant to Halloween. The word fear came up an awful lot, didn't it? But really, I was in the mood for talking about meditation uh, theory and things that are relevant to cultivation. But um, I think some people will disagree with that. And that's okay. That's okay. That's fine. Like, no problem. These are just my experiences. And, and maybe I want to help explain this just to see if it will help anybody. Because I think a lot of people suffer with fear. And I think especially at the moment, a lot of people are losing free will and getting drawn into various paths that aren't chosen for them. They are simply presented to them. And I think that's quite sad to see. And I think that's because people are stuck in this state of fear. I know this is because people are stuck in this state of fear. And this is what needs to go. And hopefully if you can get rid of that fear, then Halloween will be a lot more pleasant.